<coughs> I think today <coughs> is going to be a good day for a lot of you. <coughs> uh, I, I think that, <coughs> you know, whenever you try to <coughs> preach, <coughs> uh, <laughs> just give me a minute here. <coughs> It may not be as good a day as I thought it was just a minute ago. <coughs> Man. <coughs> anyway, today we're going to get into Proverbs chapter 21. And I think it, <coughs> it'll be a principle and a verse that will help everybody. <coughs> I know that when you preach the Bible on Sunday morning or Thursday night, I, I know it affects everybody because <coughs> everybody has different issues and uh, the Holy Spirit of God has a way to just kind of disperse it where it needs to go. But messages like today are going are gonna to get everybody, and in a good way, not a bad way, in a good way. Uh, and I think it will help us understand a lot of things better. You know, uh, for many, many of God's people, the Christian life can, can be confusing at times. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 21, verses 1 and 2 <clears throat> is probably a premier chapter in the Bible. I don't know if you're counting or not, <clears throat> but we're in chapter 21 today. We only got 10 chapters left. But uh, it'll be, uh, that's a good for another three or four years probably, but anyway. <laughs> Our verse today are two of the best promises and principles in all the Bible for us as Christians. You know, the Christian life, life in general, but certainly for the Christian life, it'll have many dimensions to it. You're going to have Christians who go through some tough times in life. And uh, when you go through a tough time in life, you know as well as I do, that becomes the focus. Many of you have went through a bad marriage. You know, sometimes through no fault of your own, sometimes through fault of your own. But you've come, you've learned, you grow, you know, when you get through it. Uh, some of you uh, have had uh, sickness in your life. You've had tough times which you had to go through some things. Some times, some of you have spent more time in the hospital than, you know, you really uh, probably should have. And those things get you down. Things will happen in our lives. Things will come into our life that we have to deal with that are not always the most pleasant things. Uh, many of you have had bad relationships, you know. You thought somebody was the apple of your eye and found out that it was just the core. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't really what you thought it was going to be. You go through those things in life. And they can be disappointing. Sometimes you've gotten hurt really bad in a relationship. The husband or the wife, or not the, the boy or the gal, didn't treat you right. You know, she didn't treat him right. He didn't treat her right. And it, it causes a lot of things. And whatever we go through, here's what the problem. Whatever we go through as Christians, in most cases, we focus on that one thing, and we have a tendency to paint our whole Christian life with that one little concept. And that, I want to talk to you about that today. I want to try to help you see this thing from, from, a, from a larger perspective. Some of you have lost your job. That's a really tough thing to go through, losing your job. Coming to the place where many of you, I know that you, you, you worked for a place for a long time and then seemingly they just come in and without any care or where you're at or your feelings, they just give you the ax and off you go and, and I understand. Some of you have lost a loved one and I understand those things are tough. There's a lot of disappointments in life. You know, but here's the thing that I want to get across to you today. Think of life like a yardstick, 36 inches. Think of life as a yardstick. And the job of the Christian is to look at that whole 36 inches of that yardstick and understand it. What happens is that we focus on a half an inch or an inch, and that becomes the focus, and we lose the whole concept of the whole yardstick. And I want to help you with that today, if I can, if I may. 
I want to I, I talk to you about our verse today, which is two of the best promises and principles uh, for you and for me throughout the whole Bible. Now, I want to explain this. I want to explain the difference between a promise and a principle. People ask me this all the time. And I, here's how I explain it. All promises, now you want to listen carefully now, all promises will be principles. But not all principles will be promises. See how that worked? Let me say it again. All promises in the Bible to you will be principles. But not all principles will be promises. Let me show you. Over there in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, it says, Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Now that's a principle, but that's also a promise to you. But a place like Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that says, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, that's a principle but it's not necessarily a promise. You see how it works? And I want you to be able to understand the difference between... Now, obviously, you can claim anything you want as a promise. If that works for you, that works for you. But I'm simply saying that in the Bible, there are some things that are direct principles speaking to an action that not necessarily is something that you want to put down on your promise list uh, in the Bible. Now we know, and I'm going to give you a great one here before we get into Proverbs. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We all know that. What a great verse it is. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according uh, to His purpose. Now there's one that is a great principle, and there's one that is a great promise. And that's an incredible uh, verse, an incredible promise that you can, you, can, you can apply into your life. Now, many of God's people know this verse, probably all of you. And uh, you, you, you know, many of you make it your favorite. But I want to say this. That may be true, but I'm going to tell you, very few of God's people ever see this verse and understand it in the light of its true value. We have a tendency to like a verse because it speaks to us a little bit. And that's all the farther it ever goes. We never investigate it, dig it down, apply it to see where it really fits. And I'm telling you, many of God's people would claim that as a favorite verse, but I'm going to tell you, very few of them would understand the real value. Our ability to understand life and how God will work through it, through all things. Now, so we can better understand Proverbs 21, 1 and 2 when we get there in just a moment, Let's look at a couple of things here in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 to kind of set the stage for it. The first thing I want you to see is where it says, and we know that all things work together for good to them who uh, are the called. It just didn't say called. It said the called. God has a specific calling for you. I want you to understand that. God has something specific He wants to accomplish in your life. Getting saved is the first step in that. Getting discipled and beginning to learn your Bible is obviously the second and third steps. Getting into a Bible-believing church and, and getting to the point in your life where what God wants to do is this. God wants every one of you, every one of you, God wants every one of you that are saved this morning to reach your full potential for the calling that God has given you, the called. He has a specific calling for you. He has something that he wants you to do. Your calling won't be the same Delano as Zach's. Zach's as Delano's or Drake's. It, it won't be the same. God has something specific for you that he wants you to do. And he's telling you that all things in our life work together to them that love God, who them that are the called. 
when God looked down in heaven and he saw you, uh, uh, you know, uh, get saved, and God marked it right on there what he wanted you to do. He had something for you. You go over to Jeremiah chapter 1. It's easy to see the foreknowledge of God that when God saw Jeremiah, he said, before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. God had a calling for him, specific calling. And the first thing I want you to see out of that verse before we get into the rest of it, God has a specific calling for you. Now, you know what the unfortunate thing is that? Most of God's people today, unfortunately, will never reach their full potential for the Lord. They never will. Some of you here, bless your hearts, I love you to death and I'd do anything in the world for you. But you know as well as I do, you've been saved a long time and you've not yet reached anywhere near the potential that God has for you. Somewhere along the line, you lost that calling, the calling. Now, the second thing I want you to see here, he says, the called according to his purpose. Not only does God have a specific calling for you, but God has a specific purpose for you. And it's his purpose. You know why so many of God's people never reach their full potential? I'll tell you why. They never reach their full potential because all their life they're too busy trying to fulfill their purpose instead of God's purpose. They want what they want out of life and they put God on the back burner. I guess in the class yesterday, uh, uh, you gave the kids an illustration about a jar with, 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 with sand and little pebbles and bigger pebbles, and the, the, the little pebbles represented uh, the things that you do in life. Uh, the big pebbles represented God, and, and each one of them, and they, they would say, oh, here's a little uh, pebble. I, I got to call my friend, and you put this in there. And when the time they put the pebbles, and then you have to eat, and you poured the sand in and all that stuff, by the time you got to the big pebbles that were God, there wasn't any room left in the jar. And that's what happens to us. We get so busy with our purpose, we forget God's purpose. And the reason we forget God's purpose is because we don't understand that God has a specific calling for you, and that specific calling will deal with a specific purpose. And I, it's a terrible thing to say. I, I, I feel bad even saying it, but it's true. Most of God's people will never reach their full potential. And God, and you know, and it's a, it, it's a, it, we talk a lot about spiritual maturity. Uh, we talk a lot about the seven stages of spiritual growth that you ought to go through as you grow. Last week, I talked about the chastisement of God, and we, we looked at how that the chastisement of God was so key in our life and for us to understand it, that we didn't faint because when it comes in, or we didn't despise it, or we didn't get an attitude toward God because it's going to happen. We talk a lot of here about how to use the Bible. We put an emphasis on you learning Bible principles. The key to a mature Christian life in, in one dimension is learning those biblical principles. That's why we did it the way that we did it uh, on, uh, on uh, our, our people ministry. That is started at the beginning. The only way to logically do it, start at the beginning and start walking you through the promises as you find them in the Bible. When you do that and you learn those, it's part of your maturing process. You know what? At some time in your life, I mean, we can disciple you, discipleship one, discipleship two, but you realize that sometime in your life, you've got to open up your Bible and you've got to go to work yourself. Amen. We can't feed you. You know, one of the dangers of a place like this, and it's true, I mean, it's, a, it's one of the dangers of a place like this. You get so much and people are willing to give you so much that you just kick back and let everybody else do the work for you. I'm going to tell you something. There comes a time in your life where you've got you to get the shovel, you've got to get the pick, you've got to get the axe, and you've got to do a little digging yourself. 
We talk about developing a life based on those biblical principles. We talk about the ability to deal with people through biblical principles. We talk about you getting to the place in your life where you have discretion and discernment. All that is part of maturity, but I want to tell you something. If you want the bottom line of maturity for the Christian, if you want the goal where you and I need to be in our life, it'll boil down in the Christian life to one thing, and that is our ability to see every situation and circumstance in our lives and see how it fits into the overall purpose of our lives as God is doing something in our lives. Looking at the whole yardstick instead of just getting our emotions. And that's what happens to young Christians. I get it. I put you folks, you gals, with some of the best women I have. I put you guys with some of the best guys I have. They'll disciple you. They'll bring you through the Bible. They'll listen to you. They'll help you. They'll cry with you. They'll laugh with you. They'll do everything in the world for you. But they're there for one reason and one reason only. To get you get to the place that you quit looking at the half-inch mark of your life and you start seeing what God is doing on the overall yardstick. You'll never be mature. You'll never get past the circumstances in life as long as you focus on where you're at right now and what you're going through right now and not seeing it in the scope of God's overall plan for your life. All things work together for good. Oh, not us. Oh, I'm where I'm at right now. Everything else goes to pieces. You know why? That's your immaturity. The bottom line for a child of God, you getting to that mature place, is looking at every circumstance in life and seeing it in the context of that 36 inches. And you know what the real question is today? For all of us. Can you see how God will use every aspect of our lives, good and bad, the good and the negative, to bring about His good purpose in our lives? See, that's understanding. Understanding is understanding the things that we go through, the reason why they're there. And when you can understand and grasp that, you'll stay on point no matter what happens. There'll be a lot of things in your Christian life that the devil will throw your way that would specifically to get you off task, get you off point. And every day of your life, and the only thing, honestly, that will keep you focused is you seeing all that God is doing and not focusing on that one little time. And when you can't, the situation and the circumstances will pull you down in life, and you'll get off point, and you'll lose your purpose. You'll lose his purpose in your life, and you go back to your purpose. Now let's read our two verses today and let's see how that this will uh, all go together for us now that we have looked at this and now that we have kind of laid a little uh, deal here. Matt, would you, good to have you back. You've been dealing with all kinds of sickness and your in-laws and outlaws and all that stuff. Would you ask, stand up and ask God bless you. Good to have you and your lovely wife back today. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Proverbs chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. It says in verse 1, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the river of waters, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Verse 2 says, Every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the heart. Now, verse 1 says that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And then verse 2 says, Like a river. 
In the Bible, water is likened to the Holy Spirit of God. Now, this river here that he's talking about would be found in Ezekiel chapter 47, if you really want to take a deep study on it. Uh, in Ezekiel chapter 47, remember chapter 40 through chapter 48 are the greatest eight chapters in the millennium, uh, or in the Bible in the millennium. And in chapter 47, you have a river coming out of the holy oblation of the sanctuary. It comes down, it touches the Dead Sea, gives it life, and then it turns and goes to the Mediterranean. And the Bible says wherever that river goes out of the holy of holies, it brings life. That river is a picture in a practical application of the Holy Spirit of God in your life, the river in your life. And when you start to go through there, you'll find that somebody's standing, somebody's standing on the shore, looking across. And that river is about two and a half, three miles wide. And the Bible says that, that as a man that says, come across, get into that water. And the Bible says that the guy goes into the water up to the ankles. And then he says he moves a little farther into this fast-moving river, and he goes up to his knees. Then he moves a little bit farther and he goes up to his loins. And then he gets in a little bit deeper and it comes to the place where now he's, he's swimming. And all you can see is his head because his body is submerged in this, in, this, in this river. Now that's a picture of you getting saved and beginning to move through the process of maturity of spiritual growth in your life. When you got saved and you just start coming, you move into that river to the ankles. But you keep moving in the right direction, it'll get to your knees. Because the first thing that gets affected by the Holy Spirit of God in your life when you get saved is your walk. So it starts with your ankles, it goes to your knees. And then it comes up to your loins. And now you begin to get some spiritual strength because the Bible says in the book of Ephesians, your loins are to be girt about with truth. You keep going into this river, and it's a fast-moving river. You keep going into this river, and pretty soon you're... As anything, you get in over your head. Everybody ever go out wading in a place someplace and hit a drop-off? You know what I'm talking about? You know in a moment you're in over your head. You know the first thing that we all do, unless you're just a really a dominant swimmer and somebody that's familiar with the water? We panic. We get scared because when you step off that step and down you go, or if you're in a fast, I remember one time we were out in Colorado and they took us uh, rafting, uh, rafting on a, on a whitewater deal. But the rafts were just truck inner tubes. We all had life jackets on, but that thing was moving. And I'll never forget, we were, you had no control over it. You were just going, man. And I was hanging on and I come around this bend and I, I you know, it kind of current carried me this way. And I, it was deep. And I ran into the bank, and there was a barbed wire fence right there, and my inner tube caught that barbed wire fence. Down it went, man, and I went down. And I was tangled in the barbed wire, and I couldn't get back up. G- give me that look again. You just did that. You did. Go again. Good. Yeah, that was it. That was that. I was, I was going. I was going. Well, that's I, I, I not what I was doing, but I was praying. Let me tell you, I was praying. And I'm down there, and I had to get free, you know, and get back up. And I thought to myself, that river is uncontrollable. I'm taking a cab from this point on. I was out of control. I had no control over it. And it scared me. And when you step out there and you're going along and you hit a drop off and down you go, <clears throat> the first thing you do is panic. And because you're out of control. But I want to tell you, that's exactly where you need to get to as a Christian. You need to go so deep in the Holy Spirit of God that it river takes your feet off the ground that you are out of control. 
Because once I was out of control, the river took me wherever it wanted me to go. I didn't have any saying anymore. And the Bible says there in Ezekiel 47, <clears throat> that guy got in so far that he had rivers, waters to swim in. And you know when somebody swims, they're in so deep and they're swimming, all you see is their head. And that's the place you need to be uh, in your Christian life. You need to come through the ankles, up to the knees, into the loins, get so far into this river. And by the way, the river was impassable. God never intended anybody to get to the other side. He intended you to get in the middle to sweep you off your feet and take all the control away from you and then take that river, take you wherever he wanted you to go. You know what the Holy Spirit of God, the river of God wants to do in your life today? It wants to take you wherever God wants you to go for his purpose. That's what he wants you to do. And you know, when you're in deep water, all you can see is your head. You know, that's a good thing because the Bible says over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that the head of every man is Christ. When you get into the Holy Spirit of God so deep that it takes you off your feet, that you don't have any control, the river of God will take you wherever he wants you to go. And that's a good thing. Like a river. Where God wants you to go, he'll turn it any way. And when you understand that the job of you and maturity as a Christian is to get to the point that you understand that. Once you get to that point and you get past the panic mode, it's a fun ride. Once you realize that God has taken you for a ride and he's going to take you wherever he wants you to go, you understand that now this river that you're in, that God is in charge of, one of the greatest things you'll ever get into in your life. He'll take you wherever you want to go. That's his purpose. See, as long as your feet's on the ground and you're waiting and you're in control, you can always revert back to your purpose. But I'll tell you one time when you cannot revert back to your purpose and your way and your control, is that when you're in a fast-moving river and it sweeps you off your feet and you've got nothing to do but go with that river or drown Great study. I was going to preach it to you next week. I just ruined the whole sermon by telling it to you, so I won't be able to do that. Now, the greatest example of this found in the Bible, in the New Testament anyhow, would be the Apostle Paul. You know, we look at the Paul and we see him. And here again, I want you to see Paul not in the light that maybe I've taught you about it or you've studied yourself. I want you to see Paul from God's standpoint. You know what happens. He gets saved in Acts chapter 9, and then he goes down to the house of Ananias, and he's blind for a couple of days. <clears throat> Ananias doesn't know what to do with him because Paul's a, a persecutor of God's people. But in Acts chapter 9, verse 13, God clearly defines his purpose for Paul. He had a specific purpose for Paul. He had a specific calling for Paul. And I want to tell you something today. Just as God had a specific calling for Paul and he had a specific purpose for him, he's got one for you. Now, Paul, fortunately for all of us, let God develop him to his full potential. I hope you're willing to do the same thing. But he said in Acts chapter 9, verse 13, to Ananias, God did, but, he, but the Lord said unto him, to Ananias, Go thy way, for he, Paul, is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now, that's the purpose for Paul. Paul had a purpose from God for three things, to bear God's name before the Gentiles, before kings, and before the children of Israel. That's an incredible verse on Paul. Bear my name before kings. And I want to show you this as an illustration of, of Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, because he does this. 
He does it in Acts chapter 22 and 23. He does it again in Acts chapter 25 and 26. And he does it again at the end of chapter 26 when he stands before these kings. In 22 and 25, he goes before the council. And there's a high priest there there by the name of Ananias. And Paul's given a defense. And <coughs> Ananias doesn't like Paul. And so he, he winks at somebody. And Paul is standing there. And the guy goes up and he, he smacks him right in the mouth. Now, you would think that if you were in a situation where your life was in control, that these people could kill you at any moment, you kind of bow down cowtown and just say, oh, thank you very much, you know. Not Paul. Paul looks over to the guy that came and he said, thy whited sepulcher. And he sticks it to him. You know what? Paul is fearless. He isn't afraid of anybody. He goes before Felix and Festus in Acts chapter 25 and verse 26, and he sticks it to them. He stands up to them and he tells them what God told him to tell them. Incredible. He goes before King Agrippa over there in chapter uh, 26. And there he does the same thing. He brings a pagan godless king to the point through his preaching and his power that King Agrippa says, boy, almost you persuade me to become a Christian. You know what you and I would do in that situation? Yes, sir. Oh, you'll be thinking of yourself. If I give the wrong answer, they're going to kill me. If I don't do this right, they're going to kill me. I'll be in prison the rest of my life. Paul didn't care about that. Paul had a purpose, and he had a plan, and he had a desire, and he had a mission from God, and it was specific to stand before kings, and he did. You know why? Because he understood the great principle that the heart of the king was in the hand of the Lord. You're going to find some situations in life that are not too pleasant. Paul knew his situation in life. And no matter how it looks, he understood that God was still in charge. You read those three accounts, it's hard to believe that he's even in prison. It's hard to believe that he's even, he's even being held captive. It looks like they're the ones who are being held captive. You know why? He had the power of God. He had the power of God in his life because he knew that in every situation in life, something that we better learn, in every situation in life, no matter how black it is, how bad it looks, don't look at the two inches. See the whole yardstick because God's got the king's heart in his hand. He knows his purpose. He understands his purpose in life. He's called. He's the called. And he's fearless because he knows the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And he knows whatever happens, God is in charge. Because it's of God. He understands that in every situation in life, no matter how bad it may look, even when we cause them because of our stupidity, God's still in charge. And he'll use it for our good. Now the question for you and me today, and I understand that many of you are young Christians, so I'm giving you a free pass here, but you need to think on these things. Now the question for us today is a simple one. Can you see the whole yardstick of life or you just live life by one inch at a time? That's the question. Is God in charge of our lives really? Are we fulfilling His purpose or are we fulfilling our own? And as I said earlier, most of God's people will never realize their full potential. They'll never get to the place that they understand that God has a specific calling for them that has to do with a specific purpose. Child of God who understands that, he will never not know that in any circumstance in life that God will always be in control no matter how bad the situation may look. 
Now, again, this great truth will be reinforced in my life and your life, and it's the reason why they're in the Bible. Uh, through the study in the Old Testament, I showed you Paul in the New Testament. Now I'm going to show you four or five examples in the Old Testament of God dealing with His Son, the nation of Israel. And you know many, many times I've talked about the parallels between the two. Remember our verse now. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, like a river turneth his way. When we understand God's purpose in our life, then we'll understand how that nothing or no one will ever stop you. You know what? If you're saved here this morning, nothing on this planet, the devil, the forces of hell, no friends, nobody, no nothing will ever stop you. The only thing that will stop you is you'll stop yourself. And when you understand this great verse and this great principle, how that God will move through the obstacles in your life and my life and make you better through them, and you'll get back and give God the glory for it, and you'll come out of the situation a lot better than you went in. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Now let's look at some of these. First of all, let me set the criteria here. You don't have to turn to it. You can just sit back and enjoy it for a minute and just let me walk you through it and tell you some stories here. First of all, the book of Job. You know, in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, by the way, it's the, first, the Bible says that Satan come in before the Lord. That's the first time the word Satan is found in your Bible, if you don't have it marked. That's always significant. And the first time we find Satan showing up, he comes to be an accuser of the brethren. And he comes in there and he says, uh, the Lord says to him, he says, uh, how you doing? And the devil says, oh, I'm doing pretty good. Where you been? I haven't seen you for a while. Oh, yeah. I've been down there on the earth checking things out, you know, this great, wonderful creation you got, you know. Yeah, it's, it's not as hot as you think it is. The Lord says, oh, really? He says, oh, yeah, a lot of problems down there. And then the God said, have you considered my servant Job? Now, we all know the mess that Job got into. <clears throat> we know the problems that he struggled with. <clears throat> he loses all of his financial possessions. He loses his house. He loses his kids. He loses his health. He loses everything. And sometimes we get the idea that that was all contrived of the devil. I got news for you. It wasn't the devil that walked in and said, hey, I've been watching Job down there. It was God who brought Job's name up. You know why? Because God understood the principle that the heart of the king was in the hand of the Lord. God understood the whole yardstick that no matter what happens in life, it's going to work to our good. You see, God had a message for Job. He had something he wanted to give to Job, a message for him. And sometimes God will have a message for you. And just like in Job's life, he used the devil for the delivery boy to give the message. But when you don't see the whole yardstick and you're living your life one inch at a time, you get so focused on a delivery boy, you never get the message. And I'm telling you something. That Bible says down there in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4, that the Lord had made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. God made the devil for a purpose. And he uses the devil wherever he needs to. And the devil cannot step outside one inch what God allows him to do. You know why? Because the heart of the kings and the hand of the Lord. In Job chapter 14, 41, the devil is called the king over the children of pride. Well, they have that little conversation, and the first says, ah, devil says, ah, why shouldn't, why shouldn't he love you? Look at all that you gave him. And God says, okay, take it all away. I told you last week, remember? The real mark of your maturity is not when you have everything going your way. It's when God takes it all away. 
And the devil says, well, why wouldn't he love you? He's given you, he's given you, you've given him everything. I mean, he's got Ben Cartwright beat on the Ponderosa. He's got everything he wants. God says, okay, take it away. Devil says, yeah, take it away. Uh, All kinds of wheels are turning. And just as they get to the door of the throne room, God says, oh, by the way, take all that he had, but you can't touch him. Now, you know what that means? That means the devil could stay up that night, the next night, and the next 20 nights in a row, and he couldn't change that, and he could do it in the limitations that God said, but he couldn't touch him. You know why? Heart of the king's in the hand of the Lord. So Job loses everything. And then there's another day in chapter 2, and God brings his name up again. And he says, uh, he says okay, now you can touch him. The devil said, ah, I got some plans for that old boy. Whoa, the wheels are turning. And just as he gets to that door, God says, and by the way, you can touch him, but you can't kill him. The devil couldn't have killed Job. My point is this. Just make this story short because I got a bunch of other good ones I want to give you. Here's the bottom line. devil can't step in your life and in my life. He can't step one inch outside of what God allows him to do. Now, why are you worried about him? Why? I'll tell you why. Because you're looking at life one inch at a time right now. Oh, I'm going through this terrible time. Forget the terrible time. Look at the yardstick. All things work together for good. You really need to see and understand that. I'll show you the second one. Now that I laid the foundation, the second one's in that. You don't have to turn to it. Just sit back. If you got a boyfriend or a girlfriend here, just reach over and take their hand and enjoy it. Put her arm around, sit back. We wish we had popcorn. You can pretend you're at the movies. Our second was in Exodus chapter 1 through Exodus chapter 12. Pharaoh. It is dealing with the nation of Israel. Oh, how we look at that and preach on that. Egypt was the world power. Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh uh, he, he, he hates the people of God. The Bible starts out by saying that there arose a new king in Egypt who who knew not Pharaoh. And the devil used Pharaoh and Egypt, the world system, to try to wipe out the nation of Israel. And when you read that passage, if you don't understand, you think Pharaoh was really in charge of something. He wasn't in charge of squat. God used Pharaoh to do exactly what God needed him to do to bring his rabble of people, the nation of Israel, into a strong, mighty nation that could endure the hardships that was going to come their way. And then you know what he did after he used him to do that? He killed him. Yeah, these guys are chasing him in the Red Sea. And the Bible says that (coughs) Pharaoh gets in the middle of that thing and then God closed the waters and there he goes. You see, God had a purpose. And he used Pharaoh to help him with that purpose. Because the Bible says the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. You ever see that purpose? You know where it's found? It's found in Romans chapter 9, verse 17. A long way from Exodus. It says in Romans 9, 17, For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. You see that? God just let Pharaoh think he was in charge. All down through the Bible, you got the nations. You got Egypt. You got Assyria. You got Babylon. You got Persia. You got Greece. You got Rome. In the New Testament, you got England. You got Russia. Then you got the United States. 
And if you don't understand this, you think actually in world history that these nations were in charge of something. They weren't in charge of anything. God allowed them to do and use them to accomplish His overall specific purpose, and then when He was done with them, He wiped them out. Anybody know any Babylonians? Anybody know any Assyrians? Anybody know any, 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 uh, uh, any Persians? They're all gone. They're history. God had a purpose. Pharaoh did exactly what God wanted, and never one time could he step outside that purpose. Why? Proverbs 21.1, the heart of the hands of the king of the Lord. And when then God was done with him, killed him. In the book of Judges. They finally get into the land after Joshua. But they still have to deal with some nations. We read that and we look at that and the average Christian says, Wow, that's, uh, that's uh, wow, I wonder why God just didn't wipe them all out. That's, uh, that's kind of tough because those nations were a problem for them. These nations, as you come through, 12 of them in fact, will come through the book of Judges, will bring them into bondage again and again and again and again. And every time God brings them up a deliverer who judges them, hence the name of the book is Judges. So there were nations that were left. Oh, 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 but look, listen. Judges chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, just listen. God speaking, I also will not henceforth drive out any uh, from before them, the nations which Joshua left when he died, that though them I may prove Israel whenever they will keep uh, the way of the Lord and walk therein as their fathers did or not, Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out hastily, neither delivered them into the hand of Joshua. Then God left them there. What a terrible thing. How dare God leave some bad situations in our lives? How, how, dare, how dare God uh, in your life and my life leave negative things? Problems that you have to deal with. Problems that you have absolutely no control over, but I've said it many, many times. Many times you're not responsible for the bad situations that befall you in life, but you are responsible how you deal with them. Mean old God, he let those nations, and those nations were the stumbling block to them, only because they didn't follow what God told them. God wanted to prove them. You know why God will, you know why God will leave some things in your life? He wants to prove you. He wants to see if you're really going to do what the Word of God says to do. And sometimes he'll leave things in your life just so you, you know you don't get too high and mighty. If you're a real pastor and you're doing the work of God and you're really preaching the book, it's hard for a guy like that to ever get prideful and high and mighty. You know why? Because everybody's trying to kill him. He's keeping his head down. I told you the story years and years ago. Uh, how many remember uh, Jack Parr, the Jack Parr show? Some of you older folks, yeah. He had on there one time, and I was just a kid, he had on there uh, the, the only talking dog in the world. And I'll tell you what, it was an incredible thing. That dog came on the show, sat down there, and, and uh, he, he, he asked the questions, it talked, it, it conversed back and forth. I mean, it wasn't like, what's on a tree, bark, what's on the house roof, wasn't that kind of stuff. He was asking him, and the dog was talking. Well, it got to be a worldwide session. They didn't have internet back then, it would have been a million hits. But, but it got national fame, and, and everybody, this dog was on every show in the world. Finally, a New York Times reporter went over. And he, this dog had made this guy millions and millions and millions of dollars. 
And he goes over to this guy's house for an interview, an exclusive interview, and he goes in there, beautiful mansion. He walks out in the back veranda and beautiful palm trees and everything, and there was the dog house. It was the most beautiful dog house you ever saw. Air conditioning, three levels, two-car garage, and he didn't even drive. Incredible. So the guy sits down, they start to talk, and he says, well, where's the dog? And he says, he calls the dog, dog wagtail comes in there, you know. Dog sits down there, and, and uh, you know, he's getting ready to ask him the question. All of a sudden, the dog starts going, and he starts going crazy, itching, you know. And the guy says, this dog's got fleas. And he's saying to himself, this dog's worth $100 billion. Why would a guy who's got a dog at that expensive, living in a place like this, have a million billion dollar dog and allow it to have fleas. And he says, I got to ask. He says, sir, I got to ask this question. He says, you have the most expensive dog, unique dog in the world. Here we are in this predatial palace of yours and this thing is crazy. Why do you have a dog that is worth that much money living in luxury and you allow him to have fleas? And the guy says, oh, that's so he won't forget he's the dog. <laughs> you know why God will leave some fleas in your life? You know why God will not just give you all the good things in life? You know why He left some nations that were the fleas in Israel's life? God will leave some fleas in your life or my life to prove us. Because He knows, like I already said, if God give you everything, well, i got people, you know, that in my own church, that you give them everything, and all my life you give them everything in the Bible, and they get so lazy, they don't want to, they just want you to keep giving it to them, keep giving it to them, give me this, give me this, give me that, and they get mad when you don't. You know why? Because you, you have everything you want. God allows some fleas. Now, I may be a pretty pedigree preacher, but I got some fleas. You may be a great Christian, and you may love the Lord. I guarantee you. I saw you scratching over there. You got some fleas. So you see that even though in the book of Judges you have this great thing, God's still in control. Those nations took him into captivity by God's decree to prove them. And you'll have some terrible things come into your life as a Christian to prove you. We all talk about hindsight. Well, hindsight, you know, in hindsight I'd have done this. In hindsight I did that. Let me tell you something. The Christian who develops the ability to understand the whole yardstick will have hindsight even before the problem comes. You have understanding. I, I'll give you another one. Back in 2 Chronicles chapter 36 and 2 Kings chapter 17 and 18, the nation of Israel goes into captivity. Nebuchadnezzar comes from the south and 2 Chronicles 36 takes the southern tribes. A little bit before that, Shanachrib of Assyria comes down from the north in 2 Kings 17 and 18 and takes them into captivity. And these are two of the most wicked, godless nations and two of the most wicked, godless kings on the planet in the history of the world. And they go into captivity, Israel, and never return. And they miss all that God has for them. Oh, 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 but look. Terrible time, excruciating terrible. Let me tell you something. When Nebuchadnezzar came down and finally shocked Jerusalem after they besieged it for three and a half years or three years, whatever it was, when those guys broke down that wall, they ravished and raped the women. They set the men on fire. They picked up the little babies and threw them up in the air and caught them on the spears. 
It was a massacre. But Jeremiah chapter 25 verse 9 says, and Jeremiah chapter 27 verse 6 says, God speaking, the king of Babylon, my servant. Nebuchadnezzar, that wicked, godless king, my servant. I've actually had people look at those verses and scratch their head and wonder what they're talking about. I'll tell you what they're talking about. They're talking about Proverbs chapter 21 verse 1. God uses everything on this planet, no matter how wicked it is, how bad it is, no matter what the nation is, God will use it for His specific purpose. He used those guys to deal with the nation of Israel. And then you know what he did? After he had Shennacherib come down from the north and Babylon come up to the south, took him into captivity. You know what he did? He raised up the king of Persia to come in and wiped out those two nations, killed them. The quicker you see that God is in control of everything in your life, the good things and the bad things, better off you'll be. Last week, I talked about how that, that even in our chastisement, it's a good thing. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11, talked about what we go through. It isn't joyous for the time. But when you just focus on that one thing, you lose the fact that the end of the day of chastisement is the peaceable fruit of God's righteousness. Got to see the whole yardstick. I'll give you the next one. Walking through the Old Testament, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, Babylon's been defeated. Assyria's been defeated. The nation of Israel is out of the homeland, held captive. Cyrus, king of Persia, defeats those two. Now he's got the mess to deal with. Now he's in charge of the Jews. And you know what? This is where the Jews in Ezra and Nehemiah go back after the 70 years of the captivity that goes on to even this day. Now, I want to tell you, Cyrus is the wicked pagan king. And yet Cyrus recognizes God and gives the land back. Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is the words of a pagan king who was not anywhere connected with God in any way, shape, or form, who followed all of the pagan things and everything that did in, in Persia. Look what he said. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. You see that? There's a wicked pagan king who has nothing to do with God, but God comes down and stirs his heart for the nation of Israel. You know why? Because the heart of the king's in the hand of the Lord. That's why. Doesn't matter if he's a believer or not. Doesn't matter if he reverences God or not. He could be the most wicked pagan guy on the planet. And the bottom line is, this whole world, get it down, is about God's purpose. Not Persia, not Babylon, not Assyria, not England, not Russia, not Iraq, not Iran, and certainly not America. It's about God's purpose to fulfill God's promises to the nation of Israel, and He'll use everybody, and He wants to use you. He has a specific calling for you. And yes, you will go through some disappointments in your Christian life. Focus on the yardstick. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, verse 2, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is Judea. What? Where did that come from? I don't find anywhere in this Bible where God charged him to do anything like that. You know what God did? 
God used Assyria and Babylon, got his people where he wanted. Then he said, okay, Cyrus, wipe them out. Your turn in the spotlight. Your 15 minutes of fame. He wipes them out. He's king. He says, you know what, Cyrus? I want you to do something for me. I'm going to stir up your heart. I want you to send my people back. I know they've been down here now for 70 years. I need a remnant to go back. You don't need to know why. The reason is, is because at the first coming of Christ, they need to have my people back in the land. So get a small number to go back. Thank you very much. So he stirred up his heart. He did it. And you know what? You know how God thanked him? He wiped him out. I'm trying to make a point. When you do what's right, listen to me. When you do what's right, nobody will stop you. You can have all the enemies in the world. No one will stop you. King of Babylon couldn't stop him. King of Assyria couldn't stop him. Cyrus couldn't stop him. Nobody could stop him. And I'm trying to get you to see and understand. When you fulfill God's purpose in life and you are, get the calling, why would you worry about the people out there who are trying to give you problems? You think the Christian life is something you go through problem-free? All my life in the ministry, I've had either people who love me or hate me. I have people that, that just do everything they can to try to stop me from stepping in this pulpit and preaching the Word of God. They'll do the same to you. They'll shut you down. Some of your own people will betray you, turn on you, and undermine you, and, and try to destroy the work that God has given you, not them. They'll sneak underneath the surface. They'll get a little group together. They'll have a, a Bible study, and they'll tell those people, we're all going to leave and start our own church. But you just get out of church for about four or five months or you don't go. And then when we all start our church, this actually happened about six, seven, eight years ago. The most goofy guy on the planet and his wife was the wicked witch of the West. And, and, and they got a group of people together and they said, you know what, let's just do this. It was a plan, just like every plan in the Bible. Here's what we'll do. You talked to them this week, didn't you? They have anything good to say about me? No. No. <laughs> And you know what? They got the little group together out the back door, had a nice little plan. That's been what, five, six, seven, eight years ago? You go to that church today, he's running two chickens and a duck. All the people have left. He's got nothing over there, nothing anywhere. And he had everybody else as the problem. See? I'm the bad guy. Look what I've got. He's the good guy. He's got two people. That guy couldn't build a good case of hemorrhoids, let alone build a church. <laughs> They're going to come your way. They're going to come your way. The quicker you realize that nobody can stop you when you're doing what God wants you to do, I'm going to tell you, the better off you're going to be. Don't ever get caught up in the bugs on your windshield of life. You're driving down the freeway and splat! Big old bug guts all over the place. It, it irritates you at first, doesn't it? And then when you turn your wipers on, it, it makes it even worse. It smears the whole thing. <laughs> but when you stop and get gas and you get out and you get that spongy thing out of the thing, you just do it off. You know what? Your whole Christian life is going to get bugs on your windshield, and when you stop for a moment, just get the squeezy and wipe them off. They're always going to be there. They're always going to, somebody is always going to try to stop you. And you're going to allow that to happen if, 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 
you don't understand that nobody can stop you. When you're doing God's purpose, God's got his hand on your life, everything that anybody, oh, you know what Ruckman used to say? Oh, Ruckman was, you go on a website, there'll be 85 pages of, of some of the worst stuff you ever saw in your life that wasn't true. There was one guy one time that was taking Photoshop and he was taking pictures of Ruckman and, and Donovan or maybe it was McGahee back at that point in time and he was, he was putting them on in a, in a Facebook and he was putting them in, in, in a bar scene with women sitting on their laps and then putting it all over the place. This is the great Peter S. Ruckman. This lies, lies, lies. You know what old Pete said? He said, that stuff never bothers me. He said, you know what I've learned? He said, every time somebody takes a cheap shot at me, every time that somebody just tries to stop me or clobber me, God just gives me double blessings and I just move on. When you understand that concept, you don't worry about those guys. You don't worry about that stuff, man. That stuff's junior varsity. You know why? Because the heart of the king's in the hand of the Lord. Nobody can stop you. Nobody can stop you. You stop yourself. He says in verse 3, Who is there among all this people? His God be with him. And let him go down to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. Wow! This pagan king, he's got more Bible than most guys got today in the pulpit. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of this place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts and beside a free will offering of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. A godless pagan king against everything that God is in his theology who worships all the stars and the gods of heaven. And off they go. He sends a decree to send them back. Ah, but in chapter 4, just like I told you, they go back to do God's purpose Four, the adversaries show up. The opposition comes. They show up and they say, hey, we want to build with you. Then the Bible says they hired counselors against them. Then the Bible says in verse 6, they made false accusations against them. Then the Bible says in 11 through 14, rumors and half-truth, all to stop God's purpose. The heart of the kings in the hand of the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 23 through 28, he said this, Cyrus did, Whatsoever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligent done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his son? You know what he's saying? He says, I'm the one that sent him back. What's your problem with it? I'm the king, you're not. If somebody needs to be dealt with, I'll deal with them. And you know what God? Would, some of God's people need to know? If somebody needs to be dealt with, let God deal with them. Who puts you in charge? Also, we, we, we certify you that touching any of the priests and the Levites, singers, porters, Nethanims, and ministers of this house of God, it shall not be lawful to impose toward tribute or custom upon them. And thou, Ezra, after the wisdom of thy God, that is in thine hand, set magistrates and judges which may judge all the people that are beyond the river, as such, and know the laws of God, teach ye them that know them not. And whithersoever will not do the law of God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily upon him. Are you kidding me? A pagan godless king who has nothing to do with God, who died and went to hell, probably. God stirred up his heart and sent the Jews back so they would be in the land when the first coming of Christ showed up. You know why? You know how that happened? You better get it. 
You know why nobody stopped them? You better get it. You know why no adversary could stop the work of God and God's purpose the same way it won't in your life? I know the reason why some of you don't want to get into it up to your head and get into the thing over your head is because you don't want the opposition. Let me tell you something. You better develop a smell and a love for napalm in the morning. You're in into a battle. Don't fear the adversary. Book of Esther. You have Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Now let me give you this, just so you have this. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah, it tells the story of what happened to the Jews that go back. You want to put that at the beginning of, of Ezra and Nehemiah. Put a little note in there. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah tells the story of what happened to the Jews that go back. The book of Esther tells the story of what happened to the Jews who stayed in Babylon. You want to get that down. Esther is the strangest book in the Bible. You notice this? Only two books in the Bible to start with a woman's name. Did you ever see that? Only two books in all of the Bible to start with a woman. Lots of women in the Bible. But there's only two books in your Bible to start with a woman's name. You know why that is? Because in your Bible, there's only two key women in all the whole Bible. One of them is the nation of Israel. One of them is the church. And when you go over to the book of Ruth, which is named after Ruth, you've got a picture of the church. And when you've got a book of Esther, which is named after Esther, you've got a picture of the nation of Israel. Now, I want to tell you something. That was worth coming this morning for. You may not see that now to value that, but that was worth coming. If you got nothing else and you got that, you did a good thing getting here today. In the book of Esther, what happened? The Gentile queen gets the throne, then the Jewish queen goes on the throne. Esther is a picture of the end of the time of the Gentile. Esther is a picture right now. Israel is coming on the scene, and the Gentile world is soon to be off the scene. It's the only book in the Bible where God is not mentioned. There's no mention of the name of God, no mention of God doing anything. And yet, if you study the book, he's behind the scenes orchestrating every event and doing everything that he does. It's a picture of the time that we live in. You wouldn't think that God is doing anything today with all the stupid stuff that's going on. God is behind the scenes, not being mentioned in many churches in a true sense, but he's behind the scenes orchestrating the events for his purpose. And you have been called to that purpose. How are you doing with that? How are you getting along with that? Hey, I know it's a crazy time today. Very confusing, unless you understand Esther. Now, you know what you got here? You got the king. That's a Ahasuerus. You got Esther. She's a picture of the nation of Israel. And Mordecai, he's a picture of the nation of Israel. Then you have a guy by the name of Haman. Haman is the type of the devil in the, in the doctrinal study. But in our story, you got the king, you got Esther and Mordecai, and you got Haman. Now, Esther and Mordecai are Jews. Haman is he's not. And the king, of course, is the king. Haman sees what God is doing with Israel and he wants to stop it. So he goes to the king and he trumps up a story against Mordecai and Esther, but Mordecai in particular, to try to get the king's wrath on Mordecai and get him killed. That's what he's trying to do. In other words, he's the adversary in Esther. You had another set of adversaries in Ezra and Nehemiah. He's the adversary in Esther that's trying to stop what God is doing. And if the devil couldn't do it one way in Ezra and Nehemiah, he tries to do it in Esther with Haman. So Haman puts this grandioso plan together to have Mordecai and Esther killed, stop the plan of God, stop all that's going on, and at, you come down through it, a great elaborate plan. But 
the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And at the end of the book, Haman gets hung. He gets killed. Because the God's heart, the king of the heart, king of heart is in the hand of the Lord. And God is not letting anything. And I'm going to tell you again, you begin to be the called and you fulfill God's purpose, there'll be nobody or nothing on this planet that will stop you. You will stop yourself, but nobody will stop you. Now look at our second verse here. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth heart. Now that's human nature at its best. To think we know more about life than God does. You know why you're in the mess you're in today? If you're in a mess at all? You know why we're in a, we get into the messes we get in life? It's real simple. It's not hard. Somebody says, well, you've got this problem or that problem. No, you've got one problem. One problem only if you're saved. You've got one problem. If you're unsaved, then you got your, your, your bigger problems are bigger than what you're going through, I'm telling you. But if you're saved here this morning and your life's in a mess, your kids are in a mess, your, your marriage is in a mess, everything's in a mess, you've got one problem. One problem only. One problem only. It's simply this. You think you know more about life than God does. And you don't. I don't. But human nature is to think that we know more about life than God does. The book says one thing, we're going to do something else. I had parents sit in my office and actually lose their children, lose this and lose that, and sit there and say to me, you know what, I lost my boy or I lost my girl, and scratch their head and say, I don't get it. And I look at them and I think to myself, this is a joke, right? This is some kind of theatric thing you lost your kid and you don't know why you allowed somebody else to have more influence in their life than you and you don't understand why are you this is a joke right it's a it's some kind of skit you saw the ones at camp you thought you were going to put one together i'm going to tell you something i'm going to tell you something We always think we know more about life than God does until our life goes upside down. And then we have the audacity to play stupid and say, gee, I wonder what happened with my family. I wonder what happened with my marriage. I wonder what happened with my children. Really? Rationalization and justification to deceive ourselves that we are right when we're really not? I mean, I see it all the time. People get into a situation, they will not face the reality of the situation, they want to stick their head in the sand and they want to say, gee, I don't know how that happened. Then you need to get saved and start all over again. God clearly saved us to accomplish His purpose, Romans 8, 28. And He allows all the things of life to help us to do that so we can see and understand it. But when you get to that mindset that you're not responsible, I don't know how many times I've had somebody say, well, it wasn't my fault. Well, whose fault was it? We always like to blame it on something. Well, my kids were hanging out with this kid. Well, this happened here in my marriage, or this happened here, or this, or this happened here, or that. Who was in charge? Who allowed anybody to have more influence in your world than you as the spiritual leader or the mother and the father or as a Christian? Who? 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 And I'm not an owl. Who? Who? 
Who, who allowed that? How did that happen? But we like to blame it on everything else. You know why? We don't want to take responsibility for who we are. And I got some news for you. Every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the heart. You may not have it downright. He's got it. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, The word of the Lord uh, discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart, brother. God listens in on our thoughts. Like the business you call, you know. You call AT&T, you call the cable company, you call the insurance company, you call your doctors, you call whoever, and you're waiting there and you get this little recording. These, these calls may be recorded for quality assurance. Well, Malachi chapter 3, verse 16 says, your thoughts are being monitored for your quality assurance. God's book of remembrance. For the thoughts. I bet you most of God's people here didn't even know that God had a book for our thoughts. Yeah, we get to the seventh seat of Christ, we start to explain it all away. God will just pull out that book and say, let's see what your thought was on that. It's going to be much more complicated than just standing up there and saying, yeah, I screwed up. Psalms 139, verses 1 through 6. Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsettings, mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast besat me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. God ponders what we think about. Right now, as you're sitting here listening to this, you know what you're doing? You've got some kind of attitude of heart going on with what's being said. He's pondering it. He's listening to it. And he's saying to you, well, how do you feel that way? And you say, well, I just don't like what he's saying. Well, when's the last time you won somebody to Christ? Yeah. Well, yeah, I know, but I just, you know, I just think you, yeah, when's the last time you read your Bible through? Well, yeah, but I just, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, when's the last time you ever got down on your knees and prayed with your kids? When's the last time you ever opened up the Bible and got on your knees with them when they had a problem and you prayed them through with it? Didn't get up off your knees until the problem was solved. Are you too busy doing your own purpose? Oh, I'm telling you. God ponders what we think about. And God will take those things we think about. And God's got a book of remembrance for our thoughts. And then he begins the process of establishing them for his purpose. He will take the common man, every one of you, the greatest asset that you, all of you have, for most part, the greatest asset you all have is the fact that you're all stupid. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a bad way. You've never been educated outside your intelligence. You're still dumb enough, most of you, just to believe that God is who he says he is and he'll do what he says he'll do. The problem is you're just not looking at the yardstick. I get it. I understand. I was over to Home Depot. I was going to give everybody a yardstick today, but they were too expensive. And I didn't want your kids sword fighting with him and putting somebody's eye out, so I thought that might be a good thing, too. That's our problem. We got the yardstick of life. And all we see is what we're going through right now at that, 
and a half inch, at half inch at a time. Oh, what am I dealing with? How am I ever, ever going to get through this? Look at the yardstick. All things work together for good. Everything. Even the bad things. But you see, when we don't see God's purpose, we don't fulfill God's purpose, we don't understand the calling, all you see is that life going through life a half inch at a time. How, how boring is that? He gave us the Bible, the Holy Spirit of God, gave you a pastor, gave you a New Testament church, gave you the ministry. He'll take the common man with a common Bible and then use him to fulfill God's common purpose through the things that he's given you. You have everything you need. The moment you got saved, you got the Holy Spirit of God. Once you got the Holy Spirit of God, you fortunately got the right book, got the right book, got the right church. Got the right teaching. Got the right people working with it. Got their, everything going. There isn't one person in this church that ever taught you anything contrary to what was good for you. And if they did, he ain't here no longer. Or she isn't here, whoever. And I'm not talking about anybody in my mind. He'll take every situation that comes our way and use it for the good of his purpose. If we can see it. The man and the woman, you and me, will develop our understanding in life, understanding to see God's hand in every situation in life. That way, you never have to take it personal. I, I tell you in counseling, never take it personal when somebody rejects you. Never take it personal when somebody hates you. Never take it personal when somebody slanders you. Never take it personal when somebody tries to destroy you. You know why? It doesn't matter. All that matters is, are you doing God's purpose in your life? Because if you are, I just gave you five or six examples where if the king of Babylon and Pharaoh and the king of Assyria and the king of Persia couldn't stop God, whatever little piddly thing you got in your life today isn't going to stop it either. This will give him the burden, the boldness, and the freedom to preach like Paul did. You'll have the power to preach the Word of God wherever you're at without being intimidated. You'll have the power and the boldness to say whatever God wants you to say because you realize that God is in control. You'll have the ability to teach whatever needs to be taught because you realize at the end of the day, God is in control. And whoever is around you that wants to stop you or doesn't like you or doesn't like this doesn't really matter. Knowing that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And life like a flowing river. It will go where God wants you to go. And two, no one will stop it. And as our verse says in Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Wesley Cripple is a good friend of this church's. Uh, Wesley, I hope you're listening this morning. He sends me neat stuff from time to time. And Wesley, I want to thank you personally. God used you greatly this week in my life because I was putting this thing together. And I always like to end with something that kind of pulls everything together, you know. And uh, it's, it's part of communicating the truth that you have. And I was pondering it, and I got an email on Monday or Tuesday, and it was from Wesley, and he sent me this story, and he told me, he says, I thought you'd like this and pass it on. So, Wesley, yes, I did like it, and I'm about to pass it on. 
It illustrates exactly what I just told you this morning. He's a good guy, old Wesley, and he's a friend of this church and in my ministry. And he sent me a little story that illustrates Proverbs 21, 1 and 2 and Romans chapter 8, verse 28 perfectly. It goes like this. One Sunday morning at a small Baptist church, a new pastor had just taken over the church. He really didn't know anybody, and he was getting ready to get up and preach. And he was sitting there, and he had called for one of the elder deacons, one of the older deacons, to, to, uh, to lead in the opening prayer. And he was focusing on preaching, and the deacon graciously come up to the pulpit, stood up and said, let's bow our heads. And he began to pray and he said, Lord, I hate buttermilk. Pastor opened one eye, I'm looking up there, you know, and where's he going with this thing, man? Then the deacon continued and said, Lord, I hate lard. Now the pastor was really perplexed. The deacon went right on and continued. And he says, Lord, I'm, I'm not crazy about eating just plain flour. But Lord, after you mix them all together and bake them in a hot, hot oven, I just love the biscuits that come out. Lord, help us to realize that when life gets hard, when things come up that we don't like, when things come up that we don't understand what you're doing, Lord, help us to remember that all things work together for our good. But some of the ingredients we don't care for just have to bake a while. Lord, we just need to be patient and wait to understand what you're making in our lives. And Lord, I know this. In my life, when you're finally finished baking all the ingredients of my life, it will be a lot better than any biscuits I ever had. Amen, amen, and amen. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of waters, he turneth it whatsoever he will. And we know that all things work together for good to them who are the called according to his purpose. You see, the real mature Christian understands that. Because tomorrow, this afternoon, Sometime this week, your world's going to fall apart. Something's going to happen. Somebody's going to say something. Phone's going to ring. It's going to be some terrible th news that you have to deal with. Something's going to come up. And when that all happens and all transpires and all takes place, you need to realize that it's just part of the whole yardstick of life. You never judge your life or where you're at by the half-inch marks. You step back and you look at the whole yardstick and you realize that God takes it all. He takes the good, He takes the bad, He takes the indifference. And He bakes it and mixes it all together. And at the end, it comes out for His purpose. What He wants. Just like He brought Israel through all the tough times that they did. The heart of the king was in the hands of the Lord. No one, no one, no matter how vehemently they hate you, no matter how detestable you are to them, no matter what they do and how they stay up all night long to destroy you or whatever you're doing, They'll never hurt you. But the bottom line is, God's got your back. When you do His purpose, they just are the bugs on the windshield of life. And you just keep moving on and doing what He wants you to do. That verse, this passage, will change your life if you walk out of here today in understanding. Nothing can stop you. Greater is He that's in you that's in the world. You don't have to be afraid of anything because... 
Perfect love casteth out fear. You have everything that you need to be the called according to his purpose. And when you do that, you rest in the fact with the boldness, you rest in the fact with everything that God has for you. Every Christian ought to be three things. You ought to be faithful to God. You ought to be fervent for God. And you ought to be fearless for God. Because you realize it isn't about the little thing you're going through right now. It's about where you're going in life and what God is going to do with you. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, thank you. Praise you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for those great verses. May these good people today, people that I love, people that minister with me, and yet they struggle and fight through things just like I have to and all the other things that, that every Christian has to. Help us to see and understand. It isn't about the little increments of the issues of our life. It's about the overall process of God. There will be people try to stop us. There will be people that will hurt us. There will be people that will help us. There will be people that will encourage us. And there will be people that will try to discourage us. It doesn't matter. You can't accept the negative from the bad. You have to accept it all and put it in God's oven and let it bake. And what comes out will be God's purpose. And we rest in the fact that we can be faithful, we can be fervent, and we can be fearless because we know that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, for his sake we ask it. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.